And we had a verse this morning that said Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the, the, the person who was and is and is to come, the Almighty God. Uh, and so this morning I want, to, um, I want to unpack that a little bit and I want to talk about Jesus and the way that he presents himself uh, in the book of Revelation. And I'm, we're going to focus on chapter 2 and 3. We're not going to get into, you know, all of that other airy-fairy stuff, which is going to take me a long time to unpack. Uh, we're going to stick to the nice, easy passages, Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, some people say they're not, not so easy. But um, what we want to do this morning is, is focus on the face of Jesus and understand what he wants to say to us. There's a story about a great painter. He'd finished painting a scene in a room in which the Lord Jesus Christ was the central figure. And he invites some friends over to come and see it. And as they look at this scene, and it's Jesus sitting at a table, they are drawn to the the way that the artist has captured the intricate lacework on the table. And they start talking amongst themselves, and they say that the, the, the artist has done just a fantastic job at the intricate detail portraying the lace on the table. And as the artist is is hearing this, he grabs his brush, he dips it in some paint, and he just straight across the lacework. And he says, you fools, it's the face of the master that I'm trying to see here today. And sometimes we we can be missing the face of Jesus in our Christianity and our Christendom with all the things that we want to do. We miss the face of Jesus because we're so busy looking at the other details uh, that are in front of us. One of the questions that people have often asked is, what does Jesus look like? Uh, You can go online and you say pictures of Jesus and you will find all sorts of different uh, images that people have said uh, over the years that Jesus looks like. You you can go straight from the computer generated first century Jew, you know, sort of this average, this is what he would have looked like. Uh, You can find pictures of black Jesus. You can find pictures of Asian Jesus. You can try and find pictures of Jesus that don't look like a person at all. Uh, we do know one thing uh, about Jesus. He had, uh, he had a, a muscular uh, issue called, um, was it scapular dysplasia, something like that. His hands were always out like this. Every picture of Jesus we see, his hands are out like this, right? Must be some sort of shoulder rotation problem. No, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, uh, last week, Julie and I went over to see the, uh, the tabernacle at, at Cape and Ray. Um, and interestingly, in, this, in the start of the book that they gave us, they, um, they said, just, you just have to remember that God didn't implement all of these rituals and these ceremonies for the sake of it. He did these things because he wanted to point the Jews to himself. And in the same way, uh, you know, we can miss this idea of that everything we do in our Christian walk is supposed to be drawing us to Jesus, drawing us into a relationship, not just to become a ritual we have in, in, you know, in the start of the Bible, we have God implementing these things to show himself as, as a representation. Remembering we are, we are limited man. We can't understand God. God is so far above us that any picture that we try and draw is always going to fall far short. And so when God represents us, himself to us, he has to do it in, in ways that we can understand in our limited being. Well, at the other end of the Bible, uh, we're in the book of Revelation, we have Jesus presenting himself to the churches in different ways. 
And the way that he presents himself is not to give us description. He's not saying, well, my eyes are this color and my hair is this color and it's wavy and flowing locks and nice blue eyes and white skin. This uh, Renaissance picture of Jesus and a little bit halo. He always stand, looks like he's standing under a spotlight like this. Uh, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't give us that description, but he does describe himself. He does say, this is who I am uh, to you in a particular situation. When he talks to the churches, he talks to them uh, and says, these are some things I like, and these are some things that I don't like. Um, and now, whether you believe that these churches are real or representative, historical or prophetic, and there's an entire sermon series we could do on that. Um, I'm not getting into that debate. What I'm going to say today is I want to treat these churches as people. Right? Treat these churches as people. These are representative human beings. And in some ways, just like anybody else here, there's some things that you identify with in other people, and there's some, th some things that you don't. Right. Uh, if you're a, uh, uh, you know, a rugby fanatic, sorry, uh, you might find somebody else has a like interest, uh, but they're also into chess, and you're like, ah, oh, chess, can, can care less about that. Amen. That's right. uh, so, so there's some things as we go through the churches this morning, there may be some personality traits, some actions, some activities that you identify with, and what I'm going to do is say, this is who Jesus shows himself to be to you in that situation. Okay? So while we're going to be talking about churches, think about personality traits. Think about things that you do, uh, the person that you are, that you would identify with in some of these churches, and not all of them. But then for each of these different churches, Jesus represents himself in a different way. Jesus is not the same person saying, oh, it's, you know, it's just loving Jesus. It's just, you know, that one, one face of Jesus that we see. No, Jesus says, no, in this situation, I am your rock. In this situation, I am your comfort. In this situation, I am your judge. Ooh, we'll get to that. Okay. Then we're going, whoa, 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 is he going to judge me? What? What? <laughs> okay. So if you have your Bible with you, um, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, we're not going to get through all of Revelation 2 and 3. We're just going to pick out uh, the way that Jesus starts his letters to each of these different churches. Uh, now, it's interesting, in, uh, in Western culture... Uh, what we would say of today, if you were writing a letter, and which is also a dying art, actually with a pen and a piece of paper to send to someone else, it's like, when was the last time somebody did that, actually wrote a letter on a piece of paper, put it in the mail? Yeah, it's three days ago, there you go, one down the back there, okay, it's, it's a dying, they say it's a dying art, right, because we flick off an email, send a text, private messenger on, on message, um, I was talking to my mum, uh, she recently said she wanted to send me something, and I said, well, uh, you know, you can't, she, she has a computer. I said, well, that's not going to work, uh, you could scan it and send it to me, and, and now I'm starting to speak a foreign language. I said, well, you've got a cell phone, do you think you could take a picture and send it to me? And it's like, no, that was, that was too far as well. She said, well, I could post it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you could post it. 
<laughs> All right, and while we're talking, I said that, you know it was a, it was a it was a um, a uh, like a bill uh, uh, for for a, a toll that I had had to pay, and so I says, was there a reference number on it? And she says, oh yeah yeah. So she gives me the number, and we carry on talking. And of course, it's a talk uh, with my mum, so it takes an hour and a half. Um, so, so then we get to the end of this, she rang me to say, what am I doing with this, this bill? Um, and so then by the time we finished the conversation, she says, well, do you, do you want me to put it in the post? And I said, no, it's all right, I've taken care of it. I've paid for it already. She said, what? Why are you on the phone? She said, yeah, well, I just you know, went to the website, put in the details, you know, banking details, pay for it all online. And she was very upset that I wasn't giving my wholehearted attention to the conversation. <laughs> Anyway, 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 okay, all right, all right, so uh, back to the letters, uh, what we would normally do is to so-and-so, the person we want to write to, and then we put from, regards, cheers, uh, namihi, uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the letter with our name, okay, but in, in, uh, in Middle Eastern culture, that was not the way it worked, in the Middle Eastern culture, you start with your name, and we see that in Paul's letters, I, Paul. An apostle of Jesus, uh, write to you, right? And so the letters start with who you are, and then you have the body of the letter, okay? And so we have the same thing in Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus starts with who he is, and then he writes the letter. But he doesn't start his letters like from Jesus to the church at Ephesus. No, he, he, he starts with a, a from Jesus, but he gives himself... A, a particular attribute, a particular aspect, and that's what I really want to unpack this morning. So we look at Revelation 2, chapter 1. Uh, I'm reading for the, from the NLT, uh, but the first church we come to in the book of Revelation is Ephesus. And the problem that Jesus identifies in these people is that they have moved away from their first love. In other words, they've, 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 they were on fire for Jesus, and somehow that's that's cool, that's moved away, right? It's not as great as it first was. This word for first in the Greek is not first in order, even though Ephesian, the Ephesian church is the first church that Jesus writes to. That's first in order. He does not make saying it's better than anything else. But this word when he talks about his first love is their best love. They're first in priority. They're no longer giving God their best. They're going stale in their relationship with Jesus. And what does Jesus want to tell these people? In Revelation 2.1, he says that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now, this picture of Jesus needs to be unpacked just a little bit because what are the seven stars? What are the seven lampstands? Well, that's all explained in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, but uh, to give you a uh, the brief uh, view of it. Seven is often the number of completeness, so it's, it's a complete something. Revelation 1 explains that the stars represent angels. Now, the word angelos in the Greek, or angelos, um, is, really means messenger, and so there could be these seven messengers, right? It could be human or angelic, um, and the seven lampstands represent the churches, Okay? So what is Jesus telling these people who have moved away from their first love? He's telling them that he holds the seven stars. He has the message, the complete message, the complete revelation. He holds it in his hand. He has authority over that. And he's present in the churches. 
He's holding the message and he's present in the churches. Sometimes when we step back from following Jesus, when we stop giving him our first love, we step back from fellowship as well. Jesus is representing himself as the one who is in the midst of the church with a complete message. Isolation is a tool of the enemy. The church was never designed to be, oh sorry, Christian walk was never designed to be walked alone. It was always supposed to be in community with a body, with a family, with a building stones, with soldiers in an army. We're not individuals on a journey, even though we are within that context. But if your first love has grown cold, if you've grown stale in your relationship with Jesus, what he wants to show himself to you is that he is here in the church, in fellowship. Remain in community if you want to get back your passion. If you want to recover the zeal, the enthusiasm that you had at the first, remain in community. You won't find it going off on your own. That's the message from the church at Ephesus. And Sardis, uh, the problem at Sardis, the next church, was not internal, it was external. The church was suffering intense persecution. Things were not going well. There was trouble, poverty, and slander. People were speaking badly about them. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus gives them a really nice word in verse 10. He says, what they're about to suffer is nothing. It's going to get worse. It's like, oh. Is that a word for you this morning? No, no, we were about to. Can you identify with this? Are you the sort of person that says, you know what, it's not an internal issue, it's an external issue. There's persecution, there's trouble, there's poverty, there's financial issues. There's people saying stuff about you that's just not true. If you can identify with those things in your life, remember we're trying to say there's a church, but this is a personal. If you're feeling pressed in, if you're feeling uh, that the world is winning, then Jesus wants to show himself like this in Revelation 2.8. It says, he is the one who is the first and the last who was dead but is now alive. If you're facing trouble, and I'm not just mean, I don't just mean losing at the rugby, uh, although for some people they're feeling that's intense persecution of the world. Uh, the world is just an upside-down place this morning from what it was last night before the game. Uh, but we're talking about trouble. We're talking about real intense trouble then Jesus wants to tell you that he is the first and the last, that he was dead but is now alive. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He was in control when the dust was created and he will still be in control when the dust settles. Our confidence is not in our circumstance. Our confidence uh, is in Christ. S.M. Lockridge uh, wrote a message about hopelessness that we often see referenced at Easter, but I thought it was a good uh, lead-in or a good way to explain this, uh, this concept at Sardis. I'm not going to do it in the Southern Gospel accent, uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, <clears throat> I've watched some Tony Campolo uh, versions of uh, Friday, and uh, he really gets into that. But I'm, okay. He says, it's Friday! It's Friday! Friday! Okay, that, that's enough. All right. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning and evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross and they raise him up. 
next to criminals. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to the king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. A rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday is coming. Amen? You might feel like it's Friday. If you are feeling like it's Friday, remember that he who was dead is now alive. Sunday has come for us. The resurrection is a fact for us. Just because things look hopeless, dreams look dead, loved ones look lost, the way ahead only seems to lead to darkness. Fear not, because Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. So maybe you identify with Sardis. Jesus wants you just to know him as the first and the last. With Jesus, there is always hope. And that doesn't matter whether the end of troubles comes in this life or the next. That's Sardis. Maybe you can identify with Sardis. What about Pergamos or Pergamum, depending on which uh, side of the Atlantic you were brought up on? Uh, The name of the church actually means mixed marriage. And it identifies the problem that was going on. As with most of the churches, not everything was bad, but there were some things that were not good at Pergamos. Uh, They had added to the gospel message. Now, in theological circles, we call this syncretism. Many of the religious traditions that we see in church today are the result of syncretism. Syncretism. Who can, tell, who can point me to the verse that uh, shows where Easter eggs are in the Bible? Hmm? Christmas trees. Christmas altogether. Anybody? Can we find a scripture about Christmas? Well, of course not, because all those things come from pagan religions. Syncretism said we take what was in the world and we take what the message of Christ was and we add them together because that makes it more palatable for people. Now, I'm not going to preach here a message, the, the anti-Christmas message. Uh, so, Kathy, you can... Uh, that's, that's one of the other sermons I could draw on. But that's beside the point. <laughs> beside the point, really. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, some people were like, yes, no, no, that's right. All right. Uh, the fact is that even today, we are guilty of the same thing. We add our message to the church because we see what's in the world. Think about the prosperity gospel, the, God, the, the gospel that says God wants to bless us and bless us abundantly and most often financially. It rose in the church at the same time as books like Think and Grow Rich or The Power of Positive Thinking came on the scene. Is that a coincidence? No, because there are some people in the church who said, hang on, these books are very successful. Why don't we just bring that into the Christian message? After all, it sounds Christian, doesn't it? God wants to bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. Is there any suffering in that? No, just bless me. What's the issue for here for us as individuals? The question this morning is, what have you added to your faith? What have you mixed in 
with your faith? What have you added to the gospel? What do you interpret in your life as Christian doctrine when actually, in fact, it's just a cultural worldview? How does Jesus want to present himself for those people? You don't have to put your hand up. Revelation 2.12. He is the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. That's what Jesus wants to present himself, uh, the way he wants to present himself to you. Jesus is ready to operate, and he has a sharp scalpel. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The word of God is the answer to mixing the world with the gospel. The word of God should be not only our guidepost, not only our standard, not only our measuring rod, but the word of God should be our guillotine as well. Ooh, ouch. What things in your life do you need to cut off? Ashley's uh, celebrating because we bought a new guillotine for the church. And All right. Happy place. All right. So that's Pergamos. Thyatira. Understand that each of these could be a sermon in itself, but we'll just get through these. Before we get to the issue in Thyatira, let's have a look at how Jesus presents himself. Before you put your hand up and say, you know what, I feel like I'm a Thyatira, just, uh, just remember, Jesus says this, He is the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. Last week, Jamie talked about this look that Jesus gave Peter as Peter is denied uh, Jesus at the, at the trial, this mock trial. Jesus is suffering. He's been beaten. He's been spit on. He's about to be dragged away, and he looks over, and he catches Peter's eye. And we think about that look as being one of compassion because Peter realizes what he's done. Peter's denied Christ. And so there's this loving compassionate look that we speculate that Jesus has given to Peter. Let me just tell you, for Thyatirans, this is not that look. Okay? Fire and bronze speak of judgment. Okay, so bronze, uh, if you know your history, uh, we had the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. Okay, bronze was the metal that could... Everyone's like, what is he talking about? Is that a school? No. Uh, oh, the Ice Age. That was... Anyway. Um, that's a movie. Uh, we have this idea that bronze was the metal that could hold fires. An alloy of tin and copper, uh, but it could hold fire. All right? So most base metals are, are, too, uh, are too soft. You put fire in them, they'll just eventually melt and distort. All right, but when they came up with bronze, uh, then they could actually hold fire. So we had the bronze altar of sacrifice uh, in the temple. Why was it not gold? As soon as you start the fire, the whole thing is just a big puddle on the ground. All right, so that's why we use bronze. But symbolically in the Bible, bronze then speaks of judgment. Okay, uh, Just in the same way, we think about it this way. With, uh, this sin is being represented by the serpent. And so when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, that's a picture of sin being judged. And he said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Sin 
judged. And so this look of fire and this feet of polished bronze is Jesus looking in judgment. Now, I'm not saying condemnation. He's looking in judgment. As a father, I have always and will always love my children, regardless of what they do or the frustrations they may have brought. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Uh, or will bring in the future. <laughs> oh, she's the only one here. All right, however, <laughs> Ashley can probably attest to the fact that there were some instances where my gaze has not been one of a doting parent. Yes, okay. This is, this is Jesus. Now, do I love, them, love her any less? No. Jesus is a presenting an image to Thyatira, says, if you continue with this, someone's going to get hurt, and it ain't going to be me. Julie's, uh, sorry, Ashley's heard that too. If you want to continue with this, someone's going to get hurt, and it's not going to be me. Um, Jesus said it first. So what deserves that look from Jesus? What's the problem that he's trying to identify uh, at the church, in the church in Thyatira? What is the problem this morning that maybe God is wanting to identify in your life? Well, the problem really was twofold. One was idolatry, and the other one was compromise. Now, the Ephesian church, we say, had a love that had cooled. The Thyatiran church had a love that was directed elsewhere. The, the, uh, the church at Pergamos had a, a gospel that had been added to. The church at Thyatira uh, has a gospel that has been subtracted from. Compromise. Now, I'm not trying to make people uncomfortable this morning. This is Jesus as he presents himself. And we, you know, we, we sort of struggle with this idea, but this is a loving God. How can he look at us in judgment? Well, he's not judging you. He's judging the sin within you. He wants to, to encourage you to come back to him. He wants to say, this is not the path that you want to go down. This way only leads to destruction. And I'm judging that, but I want to turn you around. I want you to come back. The question is, what have you lifted up other than the name of Jesus? Is it work, money, comfort, convenience, lifestyle? Where have you watered down the standards that God has set so that you don't offend people? What have you compromised in your faith? The words of Jesus, if you continue with this, someone is going to get hurt, and it ain't going to be me. Well, that's a bit of a downer. Luckily, we're moving on to Sardis, which is unfortunate because Jesus has good things to say about five of the churches. Uh, sorry, about five of the churches and uh, good and bad things, but two of the churches he has nothing good to say about and two of the churches he has nothing bad to say about. Unfortunately, Sardis is one of those ones that he has nothing good to say about. So moving from Thyatira, which you're feeling a little bit condemned, is it, is it nearly half past 11? Is it time to leave yet? Uh, to Sardis, in which Jesus didn't really have, you know, nothing, no, thing, no, things are not going well in Sardis. Uh, what was the issue here? In Revelation chapter 3, uh, starting in, in uh, verse 1, uh, and we'll get past the, the, uh, the way that Jesus presents himself to the issue, uh, starting in verse 1, he says, And I know all the things you do, and that you have a reputation for being alive. But you were dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God 
It's sort of what, the sort of uh, line that I would use in an exit interview when I'm firing somebody. Hmm, I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of the company. Anyway, <clears throat> no one's getting excommunicated today. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> just, just, just letting you know. Um, <clears throat> there's a certain contrast in these words from Jesus. He's saying they're doing stuff and they're doing the right things, but their heart is not the right way. They're not motivated, motivated by the right things. The actions appear to be good, but the motivation is not. If you want to read a really scathing uh, way of looking at these sorts of things, you just need to read through Isaiah chapter 1, uh, where God tells the Levites and the priests that all these burnt offerings are a stench in his nostril, that he hates the ritual that they do, that every time they come to him in prayer, it's an abomination. Pretty stern stuff, if you're really feeling it, you know, strong and bold, and go read Isaiah chapter 1. Um, <clears throat> The religious trappings, the things that God had implemented, in other words, told the nation to do, the priests and the Levites, he's now saying it's, 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 it's worse than worthless. You're just going through the motions. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that Christ's love compels us. Our relationship with God is what drives the actions that we're supposed to do. If we think that doing the actions is going to somehow create love in us, it just doesn't work that way. We're better to go and find uh, Jesus than we are to try and make it, fake it until we make it. So, if you are the sort of person just going through the motions, if you're the sort of person that says on the outside everything looks good, but the Christian life has really become a series of habits... If you're doing the right things, but you feel dead on the inside, then Jesus wants to give you this image from Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Now, we've already unpacked the seven stars. The seven stars, the complete message, whether that was human or angelic to the church. In other words, the revelation for relationship is already there. You don't need new revelation to walk in relationship. Okay? There's no new gospel. I'm always a little bit worried when somebody says, hey, after 2,000 years of study, I've found something new. Like, yeah, but... Jesus is not trying to hide from us. It's not like, oh, you know, nobody's seen this before, but now all of a sudden we have a way into Christ. No, Christ is out the front in the open. The revelation that he's already given to us is sufficient. We don't need to go and look for something new. So he's saying for those people who feel dear, the revelation is there, the complete revelation coming through his, um, uh, whether it's through uh, divine or, or human messengers. But the other thing he says is, he is the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God. People who are just going through the motions have missed spiritual life. Jesus is not here to bring condemnation, but the sevenfold spirit of God refers to the Holy Spirit. He's not saying it's all over. He's not saying there's no hope for you. He's saying that he has the Holy Spirit with him and he wants to introduce the two of you. The antidote to spiritual deadness is to walk with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that message is for you. He wants to introduce, if you're feeling like that church is just a habit, then he wants to introduce you to the Holy Spirit who brings life. 
All right. Only a couple of churches to go. Philadelphia. Everybody wants to be Philadelphia, right? This is the church that, no, that Jesus said nothing bad about. The other church was Sardis. Nobody wants to, sorry, not Sardis, Smyrna. Nobody wants to be Smyrna. Why does no one want to be Smyrna? Trouble, poverty, conflict, slander. Nobody wants to be that church. Philadelphia, of course. Everyone wants to be Philadelphia. This is, uh, the name of the church means brotherly love. Uh, things seem to be going well at Philadelphia. We all want to be Philadelphia, right? And if you're thinking this morning, you know, out of the last five churches, there's nothing really that's spoken to me. I'm all good, yeah? I must be Philadelphia. Uh, I won't ask, won't ask for a show of hands. Uh, <coughs> what, sort of Je- what sort of image does Jesus want to show you, you of us who have no issues? Um, <coughs> Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. This is the message. He is the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. So the message for you, if everything is going well, is to persevere, to carry on. Jesus is holy. Maintain that standard. Jesus is true. Maintain that direction. Uh, We haven't finished the race yet. We haven't come to the finish line. If we say, well, if I just get my life right from then on, everything is going to go well. No, that's not the way it works. The way it works is that we need to maintain. We need to run the race. We need to carry on uh, into the future. We need to uh, keep going in the way that we have started. Jesus has the key of David. That means he has all authority in the kingdom. And when he creates opportunities to advance the kingdom, nothing in the universe can stop him. What he opens, no one can shut. When we try to do something outside of what he wants, we labor in vain. If Jesus has closed the door, all our beating, kicking, struggling, grabbing the axe, trying to beat through it, is not going to work. The church at Philadelphia had to have this revelation of who Jesus was in his greatness. One of the problems we have is when everything is going well, pride is our enemy. Spiritual pride that says, I'm not like those other people who seem to be struggling in every area of life. All right? And that spiritual pride can be our downfall. And so what does Jesus want to show us in this church? He wants to show us how great he is. He is the one with all authority. He is the one who's setting the direction. He is the one who is the standard by which we measure ourselves. You know, if you say, hey, I'm a pretty holy sort of person, and then you stand next to Jesus and you go... Julie's reading a book at the moment called The Heavenly Man. Uh, Talk about somebody who's in Smyrna. Um, You know, beaten for his faith, put in prison, uh, nearly killed a number of different times. And we go, okay, so compared to him, how much testing of my faith have I had? Now, I'm not suggesting we all need to rush over to parts of the world so that we can be thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. That's not the point. But don't let spiritual pride come about that says we are good. Only in Christ, only if we remain in Christ, can we achieve anything. Okay, the last church, to finish on a high note, the last church is Laodicea. Remember, this was the other church that Jesus had nothing good to say about it. Um, What's so bad about these people? Uh, Remember, we're talking about, can you identify? The first thing is that they were lukewarm Christians. Some Bible scholars see parallel between the seven churches of Revelation and the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. 
if you want to try and match those two up, let's go right ahead. Uh, but in that case, Laodicea, the church at Laodicea would be like the parable of the net. The parable of the net says you go fishing, you catch good fish, you catch bad fish, but you bring them all in together and at the end of days, sort out which are the ones you want to throw back. It's almost like a picture of the church today. We just want everybody to come in through the doors. It doesn't matter what they believe, what they do, because we're not going to preach to them. We've got to love everybody. Uh, We've just got to be a people who accept everybody. Um, We accept not only who they are, but what they do, because we don't want to offend people. You know, after all, Jesus has taught them out eventually, and so we say, no, if that lifestyle is wrong, no, that's okay. Sinning, no, don't worry about that. Jesus loves you. Right? This message that we have is, is one of, what do we call it? Tolerance. But we're tolerant, if we're tolerant of everything, then we're just like the church at Laodicea, where anything goes. We become lukewarm. We don't have a strong stance on anything. This is a problem at Laodicea, is they had no, they had no values. They had no moral compass. They had no standard by which they would be uh, judged by. They weren't cold. They weren't saying, no, Christ is bad. But they weren't saying, Islam is bad either. Get that lukewarmness? In every situation, you can say, well, I'm not standing for something, but I'm not standing against something. They talk about this society that we live in has moved from uh, uh, this absolute truth. Uh, which we used to have, um, where the church was the moral compass. And then we moved to relative truth. I know that's true for you, but you know, but it's all relative. What society says is good is good, and what society condemns is wrong. But then we've moved one step further, and we say now we have personal truth. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And how can you dare tell me what is true for me? All right? And this idea of personal truth at Laodicea is this lukewarmness. Now, the second problem that people of Laodicea had is that they thought they were rich. They had everything that they needed. They were self-sufficient. Maybe they would acknowledge that God is the one who brought them to where they are. But now, we're here. We have no need of him. God has brought us on the journey. He's given us everything we want. It's okay, God. I can take it from here. So, are you the sort of person who's lukewarm to the things of God, a sort of Christian? I said last time I preached, you know, if they passed a law that made Christianity illegal, would they be able to find enough evidence to convict you? Or maybe you feel comfortable. Others rely on God, but you rely on yourself. You rely on your job, your knowledge, your position, your background, your upbringing, your parents, your church, your family, anything but God. For you, Jesus wants you to see this, that he is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the beginning of God's new creation. Now, the word amen, just to unpack that a little bit, uh, has, uh, it was, the original word from the Greek is amen, um, and the original word in the Hebrew there is amen. Okay, so it hasn't changed very much. Right from the very beginning, we use the same word, amen. Uh, and in the Hebrew, it had this idea of of building up or supporting, of fostering as a parent. Figuratively, it came to mean to stand firm or to be faithful, to trust or to believe. And then it had this idea morally it means to be true or certain. And so for Jesus, he is the amen. He is all of these things. He is faithful. He is permanent. He is everlasting. He is trustworthy. He's truthful. He's credible. He's our foundation, our source, and our support. So for those people who think they can rely on themselves, 
Jesus wants to be the amen. He wants to be the faithful and true witness. He wants to be the beginning of God's new creation. And remembering that new creation is you. He is the foundation of the new creation that is you in Christ. Jesus, if you are lukewarm, remember that Jesus is 100% committed to you. Not just to be saved, but to be whole, to be well, to be fruitful, to be loved, to be accepted, to be blessed. If you find yourself feeling that you have all you need, then Jesus wants you to know that out of all creation, he's the only thing that is permanent. He is the only thing that is trustworthy, and he is the only foundation that cannot be shaken. At the start of the book of Revelation, we find John in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's praying, and he hears Jesus, probably jumps out of his skin. He hears his voice like the sound of trumpets. Um, and he turns and he sees this vision, and we, and we read part of that um, this morning. He sees this vision of Jesus. Now remember, John is the person uh, who walked closest with Jesus. We see that in the, in the Gospels. And yet he sees this vision of Jesus that just completely blows him away. And as he turns and he sees this vision of Jesus, he falls down at Jesus' feet to worship him. This morning, as we've gone through those personality traits that identify each of the churches, maybe there's something in you that has said, hey, that sounds like me. Jesus wants to show you himself in that. Jesus wants to give you a picture that encourages you in that situation, but draws him back to himself, draws you back to himself. But we need to hear the words of Jesus. We need to focus our attention on him and... We need to do what John did. We need to fall at his feet. So what's the picture this morning that Jesus wants to show you? Is it the risen king holding all authority? Is it the first and the last? Is it the hope of resurrection? Is he swinging the sword of truth in your direction? Or fixing you with eyes that are burning with fire? Not looking at anyone in particular. Is he offering to introduce you to the spirit that brings life? Or is he encouraging you to persevere because he is the one who holds all authority? Is he telling you this morning that he is the only person who is absolutely trustworthy and the only thing in this world you can rely on? Or perhaps, as you press into Jesus, he wants to show you himself personally, a vision specifically for you. He's not limited to these Seven images. He's not limited to just being the way that we see him in Scripture. This is the infinite God. He wants to give you a revelation this morning that is directly of him, directly from him. So this morning, um, just as we, as we close in prayer, I'm going to make the offer that if, if you want to come forward and receive prayer uh, in that way to Uh, for a fresh revelation or a new revelation or way of seeing Jesus that you haven't seen before, the altar is open. Uh, I'm going to finish with a prayer um, and then you're free to go. But just remember that Jesus wants to have a personal relationship. Jesus wants to show you a part of himself that will draw you back into the things of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a personal and relevant God. That even though we've read these messages from 2,000 years ago, 
that you are unchanging and that you want to present yourself to us in a way that draws us back. Lord, I pray that even as I've spoken these words this morning, Lord, that they will be words that bring conviction and not condemnation. Lord, that there is nothing in these scriptures that says all hope is lost, that people are too far away from you not to come back into a right relationship, not to come back into a place where you want to uh, just walk with them. Lord, I pray, Lord, that for anything that has touched people's hearts this morning, Lord, that they would just have the Holy Spirit to lead them and guide them into what that truth looks like, what that place of relationship looks like. Lord, we thank you that you care for each one of us, that you want to give us a personal revelation of yourself, that you are continuing to reveal yourself to us in so many different ways. And we want to give you the space to do that this morning We want to give you our hearts directed towards you as we turn and see you. Lord, I pray that we'll be people who fall down and worship at your feet. We thank you, Lord, for these things that are only possible in your mighty name. Amen. Amen.